the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book Four, Susan's Bridge. Chapter 11, Loading Up. The only sound was that of the wind whistling through holes in the roof and the occasional vibration of loose pieces of roofing tin. Everyone in the staging area sat quietly, silhouetted in the dim blue twilight that came through the barn windows. What if the drone doesn't go for the diversion? Susan whispered. What if it flies over us? I hadn't thought about it until I saw all these trucks lined up in the road. You can't hide that many trucks. I know they're turned off for a couple hours so they wouldn't be warm, but they're still huge, especially forty of them. Yeah, they don't usually send drones this far south, whispered Malcolm. But just to be sure, leadership arranged to have some noisy people in the woods along the border this evening. That should be too tempting to not check out. They're supposed to wait until the drone gets close, then run back and forth across the border making themselves really obvious and use up the battery fly time. Susan's pessimist wheels kept turning. Patrols, then. Anyone coming up the valley road couldn't help but see all of that. Eh, they taught it at too, of course, said Malcolm. Tonight's when the Mad Max team is supposed to cross into mass. The Max thing is real? Susan asked. <laughs> no, chuckled Malcolm. They've just been leaking intel like it was. Total misinformation campaign. They had arranged for operatives along the Max route to radio his progress back to headquarters, using a pretty simple code that could be pretty easy to break. Add some false witness sightings, and it sounded totally legit. It looked like this Max guy was barreling across Fed territory unscathed. The Feds kept it quiet, of course. Made him look bad that they couldn't find and stop some guy in a big red truck driving right across their turf. But we've intercepted reports about the Feds moving assets down to the Catamount area to stop him. Any extra men out west here have been shifted south. Oh, Susan nodded. Sounded like leadership had everything figured out. Despite that, her intuition felt certain there was something that had not been accounted for. A red light flickered on at the map table. The ring of men and women around it looked like a stonehenge tableau. Okay, everyone, Connors addressed the room. Report is, the drone took the bait, then returned to roost. Back to work. Golfs one through six, come up and get briefed. You'll come down the road first and start the queue. Golf seven, eight, and nine, get ready. Red work lights clicked on in the rafters. If he stays going in order, Malcolm said, we'll be in the middle of the line. Do you have all your pallets marked? All but one, Susan said. We get 28. I have only 27 tagged. Ah, so tag another one. The loading goes pretty fast. We'll be up sooner than you think. Susan frowned. Adding another pallet of loose corn would be easy, but it seemed so ordinary. She wanted something better for Cheshire. It was logical to ask Connors if there were any other trucks that hadn't yet come in, that he looked very busy, a band leader with a chimpanzee band. She opted for Wilson, the radio man. Are there any incoming trucks that haven't shown up yet? she asked. Wilson was busy listening to a report through his earbuds. 
She had to repeat the question. It looks like three of them, he said. Two are out with mechanical trouble. Yeah, they won't make it. Drivers are distributing their load to the friendly locals. Bravo 7 got stuck in the snow, but dug out. They'll be late, but should make it around midnight. Okay, what's on Bravo 7? Wilson flipped through several pages on his clipboard. His red headlamp bobbed up and down as he scanned the pages. Uh, dry milk, uh, navy beans, wheat grains. Wait, did you say beans? Like dry beans? I guess so. It, it says sacks, not cans. Thanks. Susan gave Wilson's arm a squeeze. That's what I needed to know. She bounded back into the red glow of the work area. I figured out my last pallet, she said to Malcolm. It's coming on a late truck. Bravo 7. Dry beans. Malcolm looked at her with a slightly incredulous expression, about to ask why. No, it's perfect for the last pallet, she continued. Martin was always saying how he couldn't grow corn very well on his land, but beans did well. He needs sacks of dry beans to plant. The whole town would benefit from a good crop of dry beans. Uh, protein, you see. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Malcolm obviously didn't share her enthusiasm for dry beans. Uh, when is this Bravo 7 due in? They're already loading up the first trucks into queue. Wilson said around midnight. Midnight? Hell, we'll be up for loading around nine. I want to wait for Bravo 7. We'll lose our place in line. So we'll be farther back in line a bit. What's the big deal? I want a pallet of beans. It's important. Malcolm rolled his eyes. Yeah, that means we got a few more hours of nothing but waiting. I'm going to go tell Connors about your change of his plans. Then help the guys with the pallet jacks. Yeah, you might as well get some sleep. It's going to be a long night and a busy day. Sleep? Susan looked around at the hushed bustle in the barn. Even the corners were busy. Yeah, some of the drivers are sleeping in the farmhouse, Malcolm said. Susan cringed at the thought of strange dark rooms. Malcolm could see the change in Susan's face. And then some of them are sleeping in their trucks, he offered. Oh, that sounds okay. Susan peered into the darkness outside of the barn. Wh where is it? Malcolm studied his travel packet. It says uh, Juliet too should be fifth in line, right side. It's uh, Silver Kenwith, says uh, Jose McIntyre truckin' on the door. Susan hefted her backpack over one shoulder and trudged up the valley highway. Many truck tires had already packed down a smooth walking surface. She lost track, counting the trucks on the right, but she knew she was up to twelve or so. All the trucks looked dirty and reddish-colored in her red flashlight beam, but her mind adjusted for it. A dark truck with a sloped nose was clearly not silver. Neither was a flat-faced freightliner behind it. The next truck looked silver-ish in the red light. The badge on the side said Kenworth. The door had two crossed flags painted on it, one Irish, one Mexican. Jose McIntyre, she read aloud. This is it. She climbed up, popped open the passenger door, and slung her bag onto the floor. It felt good to be inside some shelter. Even the gentle night breeze pulled away body heat. Being inside of the truck cab didn't bother her as much as she thought it might. Having many windows helped, even if there was only featureless darkness outside them. She needed to have the window cracked open an inch 
to keep from feeling closed in. Her mind told her that a one-inch gap was a silly thing to take comfort in. Her body told her mind to just accept it. The gap would remain. She explored the cab with her red flashlight. There were more gauges and knobs than seemed necessary. Truck drivers must like lots of knobs. The cab had a sleeper compartment behind the seats. She knew that laying down would be more restful, but the sleeper was far too closed in and windowless. The black vinyl, diamond-pleated upholstery, reminded her of coffin linings. Her mind began to imagine a pale body lying in a casket. She turned around quickly and raised her hood to block all view of the coffin. Well, sleeping in a seat will be fine, she thought. After settling in for a few minutes, her stomach growled. She hadn't eaten since breakfast. The thought hadn't occurred to her until then. Then there was all those pallets of food, but she had been too busy to eat. She dug in the side pocket of her backpack. Warming the little bag of pearled wheat between her hands for a minute made them easier to eat. She rolled the jerky flakes into a half disc of flatbread to make a sort of dry meat burrito. It turned out to be a bad idea. It was like chewing nuts and gum. The jerky took forever to chew. The flatbread became paste that stuck to her teeth. She sighed at her culinary failure and kept chewing and chewing. Fatigue seemed to spread through her arms and legs. It had been a long day. Tomorrow would be a long one, too. She took several slow, deep breaths and closed her eyes. She only wanted to rest, not sleep. She knew that boat would be waiting for her in a dream. A sudden rush of cold air startled Susan awake. Her arms flailed out as if to quickly brace herself from a fall. She expected to be able to see something, but all was pitch black. Wakey, wakey, said Malcolm as he slid into the driver's seat. He had a small red headlamp on. Wheel up next. Susan's mouth was dry. Her head felt heavy. Oh, oh, what time is it? Her voice was hoarse. She ran her hand along the metal windowsill. Memories drifted in of settling into the truck to rest. She must have slept. It couldn't have been for long. She could recall no dreams. It's about one thirty, Malcolm said. He flipped the switches on the dashboard. Small yellow lights winked on. Yeah, we need to get this beast fired up and down to the barn. She rubbed her face and yawned wide. The truck with the beans came in? Yep, Bravo 7. Pulled in an hour ago. They unloaded it and repacked it to be Lima 3. Most of the others have been loading up and refueled. We're in the last group. The challenge will be to get this thing started from a stone-dead cold. He turned the key. The starter whined for several long seconds. No cylinders fired. He paused, then tried again. Still, only the rhythmic whine of the starter came from up front. Dang, not a single spark. She's cold, all right. Good for avoiding drones, but bad for getting started. Here, he tossed a spray can into her lap. Oh, what's this? Eta, I got a can, too. Stand out on a running board, and when I crank it over, squirt some into the breeder. The what? That round chromey thingy in front by the door. You can use your red flashlight. See all the little holes? That's the alien take. I got one on my side, too. Eta is like extra sparky starting fuel. Uh, okay, get ready. 
Susan stepped out, holding onto the big mirror strut. How much do I spray? Uh, just a quick squit, squit, squit. Uh, don't hose it down. Ready? Uh, I guess. The starter motor of the truck in line ahead of them whined. Malcolm cranked the starter again. Susan squirted three short bursts of ether. Several of the cylinders fired, but only a few random times. The engine clattered and then died. The engine of the truck ahead of them had sputtered to life. Again, Malcolm called. The starter whined. Susan sprayed. More cylinders fired. The big diesel banged and thumped like sneakers in a dryer. It thundered and rattled a while as if it might stay running, but it faltered and stopped. The truck ahead of them revved a few times as if showing off. Snow crunched between dual wheels as the invisible truck pulled away. This time for sure, Malcolm said. The engine stumbled and galloped like a three-legged horse, but the engine didn't die. These things really don't like being cold. He revved the engine carefully. The sleeping cylinders got with the program. Eh, that's good. Climb back in. Malcolm traded his red headlamp for a pair of IR goggles. He adjusted how they sat on his head. Good thing we're going to be driving slow, he said. It's a little weird driving with these. He put the big Kenworth in gear. It's really weird driving in a truck with no lights, she said. I can't see a thing. Yeah, that's the idea, eh? These things would be really sneaky if they weren't so loud. As they approached the barn, Susan could see the red glow of the work lights from within the barn windows. Visual landmarks were surprisingly comforting. Malcolm backed the trailer up to the barn with the help of guides waving red flashlights. Yeah, this shouldn't take too long, he said. You want to wait in the truck? No, I think I'd like to watch. In truth, she wanted to make sure that all pallets with the J-2 tags were loaded. The way Connors yelled at his men, it made her wonder how competent they were. The barn looked larger inside, being so empty. Only a few lines of pallets remained. She could see Connors and Charon talking with Malcolm and the other drivers around the map table. She shone her flashlight on each pallet tag. The forklift hoisted it up into the trailer. She gave special attention to making sure the canned meat pallet was in the line. Her miscellaneous pallet looked exactly as she left it. When the final pallet, stacked with bags of dry beans, was pushed into place, the men jumped down and rolled down the door. Hop in, said Malcolm as he breezed past her. We gotta get in line. The first trucks are probably getting close to the bridge already. Susan swung up to the seat. Her backpack sat at her feet. I'm set. Let's go. She felt a childlike enthusiasm, like piling into the family's minivan to start a summer vacation. Malcolm made a wide turn. Juliet, too, joined in the line of tractor-trailer trucks slowly rolling up the fire trail that she had found. The infrared headlights were fine for Malcolm and his IR goggles. Seeing nothing but blackness combined with the rocking motion from the slow rolling over dirt roads started to bother Susan. It was too much like being on the deck of the boat amid the black waves. This, this is no time to freak out, she told herself. You, you've come this far already. It's just a truck on rough roads. You only, only have a little farther to go. She stroked the raccoon tail on her rifle. She had made it through the skinning and dressing, even though she didn't think she could. She could get through this, 
She patted her hunting stick as it hung on her backpack. If she could knock a squirrel out of a tree, she could do this. We're number 45, Malcolm said. Got a total of 47 trucks. That's good for an operation like this, Connor said. Only lost three. Yeah, pretty good, he said. Have they started crossing the bridge yet? Susan asked. Yeah, maybe. Flip on to CB, channel 21. The radio display seemed painfully bright in the total darkness. Susan covered it with a glove. Is across. Repeat. Golf 1 made it across. Teams are checking the bridge now. Stand by. Hey, that's pretty cool, said Malcolm. He had to hold tight under the big steering wheel as the big rig gyrated over some uneven ruts. I just knew Justine could do it, Susan said. I always liked that old bridge. I couldn't imagine it not working. The radio crackled and spat. Engineer says, okay to proceed. Repeat, okay to proceed. Go slower, no faster than a casual walk. No faster. Must be those lateral waves she was talking about, said Susan. Uh, we're supposed to go slower, said Malcolm. This is already slow. It was hard to judge their speed without visual references, but from the bumps and wobbles, it did feel slow. Yeah, but we're actually on our way, Susan smiled. I'm really looking forward to delivering this in person. She set the little can of Vienna sausages up on the dashboard. Eh, you know, I can't see whatever that is, Malcolm said. He tapped the IR goggles strapped to his head. Oh, ha, right, sorry. It's a can of Vienna sausages. It's my little gift to Martin when we get back. Uh, that's, uh, great. He likes Vienna sausages? Nope. Susan's voice had a hint of schoolgirl giggle to it. Okay. Oh, never mind, she said. It's a long story. So you'll be staying with the Simmonses, then? Yeah, I guess so. At least I think so. His emphasis on the Simmons was an obvious reminder that Martin was married to Margaret. Was he reminding her, like everyone else seemed to be, that she was only returning to trouble? She wasn't ready to accept everyone else's gloomy predictions. Friendship could work. We're friends, she said. Her mind picked up the thought and examined it, as a beachcomber might turn over a strange seashell and wonder what used to live inside. What would being friends actually be like? This examination sent her into a circular maze of thought. Could she live in the same house and not feel something more? She would have no part of any sister-wives nonsense. Perhaps simple friendship was the purest relationship. It should be possible. Say... Malcolm began with a sing-song tone that Susan recognized as the opening stanza of a pickup line. I think I might have made a bad first impression when we started this mission. Susan's shoulders sagged. She had no patience for any more drama. That's okay. These are weird times, she offered in a neutral tone. Yeah, sure. So, uh, anyway, I was uh, taken that when we got back to uh, Cheshire, Susan leaned back in the seat. Oh, please, no more drama. She was on the horns of a dilemma. She didn't want to encourage Malcolm in any social sense, yet she had just admitted that she was socially available. Her own feelings were a jumble of contradictions, yet she didn't want to sound too cold and closed. She wanted to keep things cordial. 
She still needed him to drive the truck. I was thinking that uh, maybe we could... Uh... She waited for the rest of his sentence without enthusiasm. Nothing came. Only the deep gurgling rumble of the Kenworth's engine filled the void. What did he think they would do? She was somewhat curious, but didn't intend to encourage him by helping him fill in the blanks. Eh, you know, uh, I don't know what we might do, he admitted. I used to say things like, uh, you know, go out to eat or catch a movie or hit a club, but all that's gone now. I only stayed at Walter's for a little while. You know, what do people in Cheshire do? Um, milk cows, feed chickens, haul water, and soon cook up special chicken. She patted her hunting stick. Huh, none of that sounds quite like shh. She cut him off and sat up straight. Did, did you hear something? Huh? Malcolm tipped his head as if to offer his ears a better angle. Hear what? I don't hear nothing. I don't hear it any more either, she said. Maybe we hit a tree branch or something. Huh. Well, I can feel we're going downhill now, Malcolm said. Gotta remember to just use the brakes. They told us no engine braking makes too much noise. Looks like the sky is brighter in the east, she said. Can you see that through the IR goggles? Yeah, kinda. Busy trying to concentrate and keeping this beast in the ruts ahead of us. The radio crackled again. Proceed as directed. Stop only for final instructions at the bridgehead. No radio traffic. Out. Juliet, too, slowly rounded the final curve and pulled in behind another truck with a yellow trailer. Charon was there, giving the driver last-minute instructions. The people around the bridge moved with a puzzling urgency. They waved the yellow truck on. It rolled slowly onto the bridge, very slowly. Jeez, old people on a beach walk faster than that. Susan was growing impatient. This is taking forever. Malcolm peeled off the IR goggles and rubbed his face. Eh, glad I don't need those anymore. Eh, we're on VFR from now on. Susan noticed, in the beginning of the dawn, that the interior of the truck wasn't black after all. It was dark blue. The seat, the headliner, the dash. Everything that wasn't chrome or glass was dark blue. Her whole body felt suddenly cold. The death room was dark blue. She was surrounded, enclosed. She stared at the blue glove box panel in front of her, unable to look away. Unfocused images flashed through her mind. A small bed, a nightstand, a huge knife, deep skull-like eyes, a blinding flash, the sulfur smell. Every muscle was tense. She gasped in short, fast breaths. She was afraid that if she inhaled slowly, the blueness would somehow steal her air. She closed her eyes, but the images only got sharper. Her right arm began to ache. She squeezed the door handle with a white-knuckle grip. Her arms and legs were stiff. In her peripheral vision, she could see yellow. The yellow trailer was only halfway across the bridge. With a great effort, Susan broke her eyes off of the blue panel. She stared hard, trying to see nothing but the yellow doors. She needed another color to see. She tried to force the images to leave by blocking out all visuals except the yellow trailer. She clutched the raccoon tail as if it were a lifeline. It helped. The bad memories swirled around the edges of her mind like distant circling sharks. They weren't directly in view, 
but she was keenly aware that they lurked at the edges, ready to rush in and get her if she didn't concentrate on keeping them away. Eventually, the yellow trailer was too small and half obscured by the arch of the roadway deck. The blueness of everything flooded back in. Her eyes latched onto the blue glove box cover again. She began to tremble. There seemed to be no oxygen in the air. A bead of sweat dropped into her eye. Go very slowly, it was Cherim's voice. He spoke to Malcolm through the window. No faster than a crawl, understand? But do not stop for any reason. Keep going. There was a strange tension in Cherim's voice. She wanted to read his facial expression, but the blue panel wouldn't release its grip on her. Her trembling got worse. The Kenworth began to roll onto the bridge. She needed to maintain her tenuous control just a little longer, keep the images at bay until the truck was across. She could hear the decking creak beneath the tires. Overhead, the girders groaned softly. The girders. She could see them in her peripheral vision. They formed a wall of steel bars just beyond the truck window. The truck was rolling deeper into what amounted to a giant steel cage. She was going into a trap. I can't do it, she blurted out. She forced her eyes shut and popped the door open. What are you doing? Malcolm asked. I I can't be in the truck. Uh, Not while it's on the bridge. She gathered up her backpack and rifle. What do you mean? I mean, I I just can't. Not while it's on the bridge. She wanted to think that she could overcome and control the blueness during her ride to Cheshire. It was the bridge girders that were too much. You go ahead. I'll walk across after you and get back in on the other side. Why do that? Malcolm asked. That's just how it has to be. Now keep going. Susan hopped off the running board and slammed the door. She quickly sidestepped between the slowly rolling tires and the rusty red pipe railing. What the hell are you doing? Charon demanded. I I can't ride in the truck, she said. She took a deep breath. There was oxygen in the air outside. It felt so thick and satisfying. It's hard to explain. The steel, uh, the trusses, it was like a cage. I just couldn't stay in the truck. Charon stomped back and forth in frustration. No, 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 no. It's not a big deal, she said. I'll just walk across when he's on the other side, or maybe I'll run. Well, don't wait for him to get to the other side. Get your pack on. You need to start across right now. Charon seemed oddly agitated. Well, what's the rush? She'd imagined waiting for until Juliet, too, was on the other side, then running across. That would minimize her time in the cage. Don't ask questions. Just get going. Charon gave her a mild shove to get her walking. Okay, okay, she snapped. She started out walking, but her pace picked up. Before she reached mid-span, she heard shouting in the distance. It was hard to determine the direction. Then she heard shots. What's going on over there? In the gaps between clumps of trees, she could see men, in gray, running up the river road. They wore helmets. National Guard troops. One would stop periodically, shoulder his rifle, and fire up the road. Operation Longbow had been discovered. The Kenworth bumped up onto the pavement on the eastern end of the bridge. Black smoke billowed up from the dual stacks. Susan could see Malcolm beckoning her with a frantically waving arm out the window as he turned left. A harsh shiver surged up Susan's back, as if she had been tased. She broke into a full run toward the trailer. Shots cracked, much louder than before. 
The steel beside her and overhead pinged and thudded with bullet strikes. They were shooting at her. Susan's brokenness has risen to the point of interfering with her life. Sometimes people can successfully will a problem into the background, but there are times when the problem wins, at least temporarily. You probably noticed that this chapter ends with a pretty clear cliffhanger. I've been teased before about my cliffhanger endings. I honestly don't set out to try and create them. I can't say that they just happen, either. When an opportunity for one presents itself, I don't fight it. I'm kind of sentimentally fond of the cliffhanger. The old movie serials, shown as an extra in movie theaters, almost always ended with a cliffhanger. This is a marketing ploy to get kids to spend their 50 cents for another ticket next week. I'm not old enough to have watched the serials in movie theaters. Instead, I saw some of them as reruns on Saturday morning television and actually enjoyed having a story continue rather than be all resolved at the end of 30 minutes. I must have gotten used to cliffhanger endings, because I really don't remember them. Later, when I was doing a different earlier project, blogging as I watched every sci-fi movie from 1950 to 1979, I watched quite a few of the old movie serials like King of the Rocket Men, Radar Men from the Moon, and Zombies of the Stratosphere. As an adult, the cliffhanger endings were totally obvious, but with a dash of nostalgia, yeah, I kind of liked them. So, when writing the siege story and trying to decide where to have a chapter break, that nostalgia for the cliffhanger would sometimes pop up, and I wouldn't fight it. Thanks to you who bought me some coffees at Buy Me a Coffee. Even a single coffee is very much appreciated. So, as the serial narrators used to say, Come back next week to find out what happens.